1: Well, the news is not good on Vita Vea and his left knee injury, but the Bucks still don't know how much time he will miss. We'll give you the latest on what Coach Bruce Arians said about Vea's return. And it was too little, too late for the Rays. They fell to the Blue Jays 4-3 to lose that series. They head to Seattle now for a series against the Mariners. And we're talking USF football with Times beat writer Joey Knight. What improvements has Charlie Strong's team made, both with the coaching staff and the players on the field? We're just a couple of weeks away from their opener against Wisconsin at Raymond James Stadium. We've got all that and more in this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Bursnick. Hey, folks, if you're like me, your electric bill is just going through the roof, and, uh, you know, it's hot outside, but i got some news for you. If you want to save 90 to 95% off your electric bill, listen to me now. May Electric Solar, that's right. They're a locally-owned company, and May Electric Solar is the safest solar available, and they don't use high-voltage like many other companies. And May Electric Solar has a 25-year warranty on all their equipment and labor. They have a full showroom. They're open weekdays. You can see their quality products. Now, May Electric Solar has been around for 12 years, and they've earned a great reputation with their customers and peers. There's a lot of other companies out there imitating them, trying to use their great name. But remember, they don't use subcontractors, and they don't subcontract for any other company in any other way. Everyone knows it has to be May all the way. So stop the insanity of these out-of-control electric bills and start saving now. Call May Electric Solar at 727-819-2862. And if you call right now, you can also receive a 30% tax credit through 2019 by changing to solar energy. Call the real May Electric at 727-819-2862. Hi, Steve. So I was at uh, the Bucks workout, their final one that was open to the media. They'll have a walkthrough today, and then they're on to Pittsburgh later this afternoon where they'll play the Steelers on Friday, the first preseason game. Under Bruce Arians, the new era kind of begins there. Some not-so-good news on Vita Vea. I remember he uh, sprained his knee or appeared, appeared to have at least a left knee injury. He was in a one-on-one drill, a pass rush deal with Alex uh, Kappa um, just the other day. And even though he walked off the field under his own power, you know he grabbed his knee when he got on the ground. And, and so clearly there was something that went on there. The Bucks had nothing to say about it when the incident happened on Tuesday, but on Wednesday they did uh, go ahead and confirm uh, that it is a knee injury. He had an MRI that night, as a matter of fact, and I guess they weren't satisfied with what they could see or maybe perhaps what they couldn't see. There's some swelling on that knee. Uh, he has a little fluid, according to Bruce Arians. So they're going to continue to test him, you know, through the weekend, probably have tests the next two days, and that will give them a better picture of what's what really is going on there. Arian said that the initial, the initial diagnosis uh, is pretty positive. Not sure what that means. Probably some kind of a sprain ligament. Uh, but, again, they need to get a better picture of things. So, you know, it's a, it's a bad break for Vea. It's a bad break for the Bucks. I mean, here's a guy, uh, if you remember, everybody was sort of onto the whole Gerald McCoy getting released thing, and they signed Kang Su to replace him. But the really reason why they parted with Gerald McCoy, there's many of them, not to mention the thirteen million dollars he was owed. Um, but it's that Vita Vea was is going to be, you know, the face of this franchise in the interior line of defensive tackle, uh, and it was time for you know for his star to rise. And of course, last year after they took him what 12th overall in the NFL draft on the first day of pads, he went out there at 347 pounds and he suffered like a soft tissue injury, a pulled calf muscle. Well, that knocked him out for the entire training camp the entire preseason and didn't return till week four of the regular season, but he wasn't in shape he had to play his way into shape and so it was a really disjointed year. He got better as the year went on. I thought he played really well at the end of the season, uh, but they needed him to pick up from there and move on, especially playing next to sue uh, so it's disappointing on a lot of levels, and when you consider the number of defensive starters that will not play in this game or that has left. In addition to McCoy, of course, you have no Jason Pierre-Paul. Levante David uh, this week underwent arthroscopic surgery to repair a torn meniscus in his left knee. So he's probably, well, he's definitely not going to play in the preseason, although they're hopeful he can come back in the regular season opener against San Francisco. Um, so, you know, it's just been one of those deals where, you you know, you throw in a Quan Alexander and a Gerald McCoy, you're talking about the top four or five defensive players from a year ago now I recognize they weren't a good defense then uh, but nonetheless these were the guys that the Bucks were counting on you know when the season ended and so uh, it's disappointing and you know the, Bo Allen I think will probably be the guy that moves in there in the short term they did sign or re-sign I should say a street free agent a guy they drafted you know two years ago in the sixth round or seventh round I'm sorry Stevie uh, Tui Kolovatu is back so you know the fact that they added a player at that position tells you that they're expecting him. You know they're expecting Vea to miss some time. I mean I'm sure we won't see him in the in the uh, in the preseason because he wouldn't play after the third game under any case, and he's not playing in this one. Uh, but you know again it's a little too soon I guess for the Bucks to declare him uh, out for a length of time or not. But I would I would suspect that he's going to miss at least the preseason. So. Yeah, you know, it's tough, man. It, this, was, uh, this was supposed to be the year that he made the biggest leap. And even if he does come back, you know, they're hoping for good news on that. Um, it's going to set him back a bit. All right, so in addition to Vita Vea not going, Bruce Arians announced these guys are not traveling to Pittsburgh. Jamel Dean, who is, you know, a second-round cornerback from Auburn, disappointing that he's suffering with a little bit of a hamstring injury, so he won't go. Jack Sitchy, of course, Uh, Just coming back off a knee injury, just haven't practiced very much. I'm sure they want to be careful easing him back into it. We mentioned Levante David, who's going to probably miss the entire preseason games anyway. Dakota Dixon, who was really looking strong, um, sort of a guy they signed off uh, of a rookie tryout camp, a free agent from Wisconsin. He's not going to make it. Anthony Nelson, their draft pick, the defensive end from Iowa, he's a little nicked up. This is disappointing. Scotty Miller of course, the wide receiver that they got from Bowling Green, a guy who can really stretch the field. He's looked great so far in training camp. He's unable to go. Uh, and then there's some others that, uh, that you know, just been sitting out for a while, including um, Nick, Nick Fitzgerald, who's on the uh, non-football injury list with the, the hamstring that he pulled playing beach volleyball. So, of all things. So they got a number of guys that they would have liked to have looked at, and it just didn't uh, just didn't work out for this game. As far as the game itself goes, the starters are not going to play very much, and that was one thing that Arians was clear on. He said, "You know, look, the the, the twos and threes and the other guys on this roster that aren't starters are probably going to play probably eighty to eighty-five, maybe ninety percent of the game." And he was adamant that um, you know that Jameis and those guys were not going to play very much. So I'm thinking one series, whether they score, they don't score. It just depends. But they're not looking to expose those guys, they're looking to, you know, find some players on the roster that can help them down the road. Um, And so I asked them, I said, you know, once your offensive line clears, I mean, the plan is to start Peyton Barber at running back. And he goes, and I don't want him playing very much or very long. And I said, well, what about Ronald Jones? I mean, you want to see him do some things. He had a terrible preseason a year ago. Wouldn't it be nice if he made some splash plays for his confidence, et cetera? But Jones might be running behind the second offensive line. And let me tell you, they've not been very good um, watching them in training camp. So he said, well, I'd like to try to get Ronald Jones some, you know, some carries behind the starting group before they're out of there. But we'll just have to see how it goes. So that's sort of the balancing act you play. You know, you're not going to play Winston. You're not going to play Barber once the offensive line is out of there. Uh, And that means that the other guys are going to have to make do with, uh, with sort of who's on the field. Tomorrow, I'll have a complete preview of the Bucks game at Pittsburgh with Eduardo Encina, my buddy Cop. will be breaking it down for you, telling you about the players to watch and um, you know sort of what we expect to see in that first preseason game. So be on hand for that in Friday's podcast. By the way, did you happen to catch any of the uh, the Hard Knocks? I did not see it. Hey, yeah, where's oh. Roethlisberger? <laughs> that was the best part. So they put, they put some of this stuff on uh, you know on Twitter and. Some of the elements of it, and and some of it was pretty good. Overall, I read that it was kind of underwhelming for a first episode. Um, but the weirdest thing is Antonio Brown, which is not a surprise because he's a weird guy to begin with. Um, but I don't know if you saw that you know he has these he had these terrible blisters on his feet, and and he was unable to practice, which is not what you want from your superstar receiver. But the re- the way he got it, and Chris Sims tweeted this out, it wasn't revealed uh, in the episode at all. Is that he was the uh, he was in the cryogenic chamber. You know, they, they freeze. You know, those guys go in there for two minutes and they, uh, you know, the temperature is lowered to like, I don't know, 200 degrees below zero. Um, but you cover up your feet and your hands and, um, and and you're you know, you obviously don't want frostbite. Well, something happened and his, his feet got, got burned, got, you know, essentially uh, frozen. Um, and he's unable, unable to practice, so he's out there. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a, it was a cool thing. Like, so he's out there with a bunch of his kids, and they're just kind of rolling around the grass and everything. And the guy's like, "Hey, Daddy, why aren't you on the black team?" And of course, you know the the Raiders wear silver and black, but the defense was wearing black that day, so he had his white jersey on. And he was like, "I am on the black team." So they're going back and forth, and one of them finally says, uh, "So where's where's Roethlisberger?" <laughs> he goes, "He." He doesn't play for us here anymore. I don't play with him anymore. It's like, oh, well, who's your quarterback then? It's like that guy over there, number four, number four, this, that's Derek Carr. And he goes, Derek Carter? I was like, no, <laughs> Derek. It was it was the cutest thing because these kids were just like, you know, and the whole time, I'm sure Antonio's thinking, oh, great, this is going to be on hard knocks. Um, but it was really, it was really kind of amusing.
2: I just want um, to know what John Gruden would say about a player getting injured in a cryogenic chamber. Oh
1: well, he, you know, he hasn't said anything. This is the amazing thing. He's been asked about it because I don't want to talk about it. I got to talk about how he got hurt. Okay, he, he's no one's commenting on it. Brown apparently, I don't know if he told people or somebody in the organization obviously let it slip. Chris Sims tweeted it out. I think he's the one that broke it. Um, I, I don't know what he would say. I can't imagine. You know, Gruden was one of these guys that hated um, anybody getting hurt, and not because he didn't want them to suffer, but because they didn't have use of the player, right? John had a great tolerance for every other player's pain. You know, guy could say, he's got a little bit of a sprained knee, okay? I think he's going to be fine. I think he'll play. And he he, says, he used to say, he used to walk by the training room, and he goes, what are you doing in here? You got to get out of here, man. I don't want to see you in this training room. And, you know, guys are getting treatment. It's like they're legitimately hurt. Um and then John would always say, you know, I'm not going to use I'm not going to use injuries as an excuse, you know, nobody cares. But we got and then he then he would re- he would read the entire injury list like he was calling Santa's reindeer, you know what I mean? On Chris Sims on Galloway, I'm you know, it was like every guy on the roster that was injured. He's got a knee, he's got this. So it was kind of a woe is me thing. Um but yeah, I can't imagine what he really thinks of yeah, uh, he had to be kidding me. He did what Got frozen. What's he doing? Stuck his feet in the freezer. What'd he do? What is that? You know, like, I don't understand. He's got. So, um, the one thing he did do was, um, of course, we saw the clip about him talking about, you know, the Blue Bonnet Bull, which is hysterical. Um, but, you know, if people didn't, if you didn't see the episode, I saw this too as a, as a highlight. So he has this team, you know, in the team meetings, and, and John. The one thing about John and every player I've ever that's ever played for him has told me this that I've talked to, he is on fire in those meetings now. He can motivate. He does it with film. He does it with charts. And mostly he does it with his voice. Um, but he was putting up sort of like, you know, what kind of team they're going to be. You know, this is a great organization, man. You know, what's, what do they say? Once a Raider? And they'll repeat, oh, it's a Raider. And so they're going back and forth, you know. Um, and he's telling what he expects and... And what kind of team they're going to have, and everything like that. And then at some point, John will be like, okay, "Get knock on wood for that." And like if you agree with them, then you start knocking on the desk. And so yeah, everything. That's what it sounds like. But you got like ninety guys doing it. It's really kind of cool. Um, but he's always done that. That's sort of how he conducts his meetings. He, he wants aff- you know affirmation that you're you know you're paying attention and that you agree with him. Um, so that was kind of neat. The funniest thing though today, Steve, I w- so I'm driving in my car. Uh, and I was going, I was going to the Bucks practice, and I just happened to flip it on. And Dan Patrick, uh, who was on locally, you know, was on at that time. And the first voice I hear is Gruden, you know, and he's talking about Hard Knocks. I'm thinking, wow, this is an incredible get. Like Hard Knocks was just on last night, and Dan Patrick, who you know was no slouch when it comes to guests, he's got Gruden on, talking about Hard Knocks. And Gruden was like kind of subdued, you know, he's kind of like i don't know you know I, this hard knocks thing man i you know i just i'm more interested in what we do at practice man you know it's like i told the guys and he's just being kind of quiet and reserved and and, and everything the more you listen to it you're like darn that that really that really is john gruden until he, <laughs> until he gave it away at the end where he goes <laughs> he got a little off trail he goes all I want from these guys, we put the pads on, man, that's when we're going to go a hundred percent. And we may go 200%. No, check that. I think we're going to go 350% against those other guys. And then you went, oh, okay, now I got it. So he hangs up with them and Patrick never lets on. And, and then at the very end, Patrick says, Hey, by the way, Frank Caliendo is appearing at the, uh, you know, Waldorf Astorio in San Diego or whatever. and, and then he goes, just a coincidence that I mentioned that. And then the next caller called in, and he goes, oh, man, you got me. Until you said that, I thought it was really Gruden. <laughs> so, But Caliendo, so not only does Caliendo do Gruden, and usually he's all, you know, it's like, I tell you what, man, you know. But he actually did him as, like, the way John really is, and it was scary good. Like, it was, you swore that that's who was on the phone. So, really good stuff by Cali. I love Caliendo. Right, meanwhile, I gotta admit I didn't see much of this ball game, listened to it on the radio, and uh, the silence was deafening, especially with the Rays bats. Toronto jumps out to a four to nothing lead. Uh, the Rays, I guess, rallied in the eighth and then a bomb by Mike Zanino in the ninth off the batter's eye, but they, you know, managed to get a little too little too late there and they fall four to three to the Blue Jays and Steve, that's a that's a bad series loss. I mean, you know, you erased the six run what second inning they had the other night. They could have been swept by this team, and you know, across the board, I mean, this is not a great Toronto team. They got some young players that are up, obviously. You know, Bouchette and some of those guys had great series against them, um, but you need to take you need to take two out of three against Toronto in your building.
2: Well, the batting with runners in scoring position for now this is this series and even at the tail end of the series before has not been good i mean they were at 1.0 for 20 or something uh, i don't know exactly what they finished up with but you know they're not it, it right now it's home run or bust for them pretty much yeah yeah you know even that when they erased the six run deficit on tuesday night it was three two run home runs that erased it mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's it's home run or bust is how they're producing their offense right now. And, it, and it, you know, last week they were – it was the seven straight games scoring six runs or more, and now they're struggling a little bit. And, granted, they had seven on Tuesday after an outburst of six runs in one inning. Wednesday, you don't get a run till the eighth inning against – a you know, let's say this is a bad Blue Jays team. I mean, they've got some players and yeah. they're young. But, you know, you need to take two of three in that series. You lose a game – fine. I mean, you know, you take two out of three every series, you're fine. But you can't lose series at home to the Blue Jays.
1: I agree. And, you know, even the game where they scored, you know, they had the single homer, single homer, single homer and scored six, they damn near blew that one. They had the bases loaded with nobody out, you know, and they were mm-hmm. one strike away from leaving all three of those guys on until they got a wild pitch with Austin Meadows up and then Kevin Kiermaier, who, you know, had a hustle double. Uh, and then, you know, was it third, scores on a wild pitch?
2: Yeah, you just had a feeling Austin Meadows was not going to come through there. And maybe I know. he would have, maybe he wouldn't have, but without that wild pitch, you thought you were going to the 11th inning.
1: Dude, it sort of, certainly felt that way. I mean, Tommy Pham, you know, is up there with the bases loaded, nobody out, does not swing, takes three strikes, and he's out, and then you know, another strike. And so it was just, you know, it looked like, and that's kind of been their thing. Like they've, I, I don't have the stats, but I was listening to Dave Wells and Andy talk about how many games that, Um, they've led in like over 90 of their games and they've won maybe less than half of them almost. It's just, it's incredible. And they've led late, you know, they've had a bunch of leads in the eighth inning, the ninth inning. Um, And even the games where, you know, you've gone to extra innings, their record is not very good there. So they, they, you know, typically they'll come back in some games and then they, they still won't win. But I think in extra
2: innings, they're four and eight now after the win on Tuesday.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's not good. So, you know they were fortunate. I mean, even though they did score, you know, seven runs, but they were very fortunate and probably needed the wild pitch to win that one. Otherwise, they would have been swept by the Blue Jays. So now it puts a little more pressure on them. They got to go to Seattle and uh, and try to have a good game tomorrow night. But um,
2: yeah, you get a doubleheader yeah. tomorrow night. You get the Bucks at seven thirty in Pittsburgh, and then the Rays in Seattle at ten. There you go. That's
1: exactly right. That's exactly right. So that's a good thing for uh, Tampa Bay fans for sure. Okay, as we said at the top, USF, they're just about ready to start their season in a game against Wisconsin at Raymond James Stadium. Their practice is underway now, and a lot of changes for the USF Bulls, for Charlie Strong. We had a chance to uh, earlier talk to Joey Knight, the Bucks beat writer for the Tampa Bay Times, who covers the Bulls. Joey, uh, USF is uh, well into their football practice preparing for their opener against Wisconsin. Before we look forward, let's look back just a minute and and tell me what Charlie Strong and his staff, which has now been revamped a bit, but what they might have learned as a team last year after that seven and zero start, and then and then losing all those games in a row.
0: I, I think Charlie, when you talk to him, he's really realistic about what happened last year. You think back to the previous year, two thousand seventeen. They were ten and two, and just that really prosperous era with Quentin Flowers, a quarterback, and Augie Sanchez, the all time leading tackler you know, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who's now with the Green Bay Packers, and, you know, just a, a bunch of really good defensive linemen. Bruce Hector, who's in the NFL, Deidre Sonat, All those guys were gone, and Charlie just didn't have what he felt like were guys who could step up and really lead the team because none of them ever had to before. There, none of those guys ever had to get in anybody's face. Um, they never had to kind of like be the rudder that, you know, steers the ship when things go wrong. So they jump out to a 7-0 record last year against, you know, questionable competition. It was kind of a little bit of a smokescreen, and then they faced their really first bit of adversity going to Houston and getting drugged pretty good at Houston. That was the first loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Charlie indicated they just did not handle that well, again, just because they didn't have the kind of leadership they had had in the past. And there were some attitude issues, again, guys who just didn't handle losing, handle adversity very well, and it kind of snowballed. And, you know, what you got was six consecutive losses to end the year. And, you know, Charlie, you know, told Martin Fenley, our columnist, right right after the, uh, the Gasparilla Bowl, the sixth loss. He said, we got to clean some house there, you know, mm. and, and he did. Sure enough, uh, dismissed about a dozen guys. Some of them have been allowed to come back, got rid of some coaches, but you know, we were talking about this with Martin and I, with Charlie, just the other day, um, he, he was just very realistic that, you know they were probably not a nine or 10 win team, even if things had fallen into place last year, just because they didn't have the talent of the previous years and they didn't have the leadership. But, you know, going forward from a leadership perspective, they they've got some, some guys who have been around a while now, they've got some more assertive seniors. This is a pretty solid senior group. And um, Charlie made a good point. He said, you know, if we had gone, you know, nine and three or 10 and two last year, we probably wouldn't be working as hard as we are now. So,
2: mm.
0: you know, he says last year was really just an incredible wake-up call. And now he feels like he's got the leaders in place. Uh, he, he's really pleased with the offseason these guys have had. So um, he's realistic going forward. He, he believes this can be a much better football team, but he's also realistic when he reflects on, you know, just what happened last year.
1: Well, they did make some changes both uh, to the football team and, and to the coaching staff. And, uh, of course, so much of uh, any team's success has surrounds their quarterback. And now he has, Blake Barnett, has a new offensive coordinator. Look, we all remember Kerwin Bell as the, as the quarterback at uh, at Florida and, of course, the things he did at, at Troy. How different will this offense look and, and how has Barnett so far uh, sort of embraced it? Well,
0: Kerwin has... As you know, you know, he had kind of a vagabond NFL career, played some in Canada, you know, after he had that really outstanding career at the University of Florida. And I believe he told us the other day, he's had 11, he had 11 different offensive coordinators when he played. So he's, you know, he's picked apart a little bit from all of them. And, you know, he was also influenced greatly by Spurrier. When Spurrier came back to Florida, Kerwin, you know, spent a lot of time up there may have been like a, on his staff, uh, I have to go back and check may have been on one of Spurrier's earlier staffs, and mm-hmm. he was really influenced by spurrier that's what i'm what I'm gathering. so what I think you'll see if you you recall Rick, you know that spurrier offense it wasn't necessarily about throwing to a receiver it was about throwing to spots you know mm-hmm. finding spots yeah. on the field, making sure the receiver gets there and I think you'll see a lot of that with Kerwin, he's really high on just those. Small, quick, shifty guys getting them, you know, out of the backfield or getting them in the slot. So I think you could see a lot of, you know, seam routes and slants and stuff where, you know, he just gets a slot receiver open. I could see a lot of jet sweeps just, you know, he's really big about just finding the playmakers and getting them the ball. Um, We uh, we have a, a minimal viewing window in the later portion of practice when they let the media come out and watch. And just the other day when they were doing their 11 on 11 work, first team against first team, you just saw a lot of, I think the whole, the whole session was predominantly just those short little swing passes to the, mm-hmm. to the quick guys and letting them do stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really a radical difference from, from Sterling Gilbert, who tried to um, set up, set up the, uh, the run with the pass, you know, just trying to stretch the field and throwing those, it's those long sideline routes and, you know, having guys jump up and go for him just to try to stretch the field and stretch the defense so he could set up the run. I think this is totally different from that. I think you're going to see Kerwin do a lot of different things. I know Blake Barnett, the quarterback you mentioned, just I, he seems to really enjoy it a lot more. He He likes the potential of what he can do and what the guys around him can do. Um, it, you know the the offense really stagnated last year. It just looked like toward the end they were running four or five plays a game. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really think that you're going to see them see them mix up a lot of things this year, kind of sorta in that Steve Spurrier mode from from the early Florida years.
1: Well, that that offense certainly will will play well if they can execute it. They've got he's got some pieces behind him. I mean Jordan uh, Conkrite, we saw what he did. Um, and he's a senior now at running back. Mitchell Wilcox, I've heard people talk about him as, as being a fairly high draft pick in the NFL a year from now. And then they also have a guy, I guess, Joey, that can really run in Randall St. Felix.
0: Yeah, no question. You know, it's funny. I went back and did a little research. Kerwin did not utilize the tight end that much at all and bowed off the state during his three years there. I think in terms of the pure tight ends on his roster, the true tight ends, um, the leading receiver among that group was a guy who had six catches. So Kervin said, Hey, we have revamped and retweaked our offense, which is very easy to do just to get Mitch Wilcox involved in it, to make him a focal sure. point. He's really yeah. high on him. And yes, I, I, I believe, I believe Mitch has the potential to, to be a, an early round draft pick next year. He, he, he toyed and flirted with the idea. He, he got some information, um, yeah last winter found out it was best if he, you know, comes back to school and plays another year. So he's a fifth year senior from Tarpon Springs high, but he, there's this, uh, you know, I, I could see him, you know, having just, he, he kind of had a breakout year last year. I, I can see him going above and beyond that because Kerwin is enamored with him. And St. Mm. Felix is that speedster on the outside, red shirt, sophomore fr- from South Florida uh, he's the guy when they threw those long balls. He was the one they were going to the most last year. So you've got that weapon on the outside, and then Cronkite. You know, he, he's a thousand yard rusher. Last year, he's healthy. Uh, had a little minor surgery surgery earlier in the spring, but he's good to go now. He he's full go in practice, and he's complemented by Johnny Ford, who's about five foot five. I would say about 180 pounds. Another speedster from South Florida. Ran for about 800 yards last year, but Kerwin, the f- first day, put him in the slot. You know, again, we talk about those kind of guys that Kerwin likes sure. to, to maximize, and he's made the transition. Kerwin said, you know, the question was, can the guy catch the ball? And, you know, he, he's proven that, uh, and he has remained in the slot. So you, you talk about a guy you give the ball to on jet sweeps and just give him that short swing pass and let him do his thing. He's that guy, and there's, there's you know, guys behind him, skill, the skill – you know, the skill guys is not the question on this team. There were some defensive question marks last year, and that's something they really got to address. And they feel they're going to be better equipped on that side of the ball. But as far as offensive skill, they're they're fine. They're they're good to go. And they, you know, um, that's why uh, that's a big reason Charlie's optimistic. You know, more so than he was this time last year.
1: Defensively was their was their biggest problem a year ago, and and I know the offense stagnated, but how much more involvement now will Charlie Strong have in the defense, and have they benefited uh, from some guys maybe in the transfer portal?
0: Oh, um, no question. I, I do think Charlie's always had a had a big hand in defense, and I think that'll that'll continue this year. Yeah, Charlie makes no secret he's going to maximize that transfer portal and the position he's in and the school he's at. That you know that's just something you've got to take advantage of. And the guys that he has brought in, the most prominent guys transfer guys that he's brought in I think all all three of them are going to play a lot if not start you've got Darius Slade who transferred from Arizona State defensive end uh, I believe he started his career at Ohio State um, he, you know he's come right in he's eligible to play Patrick Macon just a big linebacker from Oklahoma State you know that, that's what they really lacked last year because of injuries and the graduation of Augie Sanchez they had guys playing linebacker out of necessity who, you know, were, were naturally played other positions. I mean, they were putting safeties in at linebacker and taking rush ins and sliding them back a little bit just to, to fill the need. Um, you know, that's where Macon, a guy like Macon comes in. He's six three, two forty five. again, from Oklahoma state. Uh, I've heard him referred to as a beast. Uh, people have just really spoken highly of him. And then you got Devin Studstill, just a, another big body from Notre Dame transferred. He's, Six foot, rock solid, two hundred pounds, if not a little more. They had some secondary issues last year. Well, this guy's a safety, a hard-hitting safety. So, Charlie added guys from the portal for every level of his defense, and he's got some. You know, he's got some veteran guys coming back. He's got some two uh, two ends in Kirk Livingston and Greg Reeves who have been there a while now. You talk about leaders; those guys are ready to step up and be leaders. Nico Saltell. Who is uh, the middle linebacker who replaced Augie, was hurt most of last year. He's back. He's practicing again. He's a senior. Again, another assertive voice. So they should be – they've got more bodies this year. They should, they should be better. I think Charlie's going to take a more active role in the defense and throw in those transfer portal guys. There should be an upgrade. The problem is we may not see that in game one because they play Wisconsin, who's got – Jonathan Taylor, who's run for about 5,000 yards, it seems like, <laughs> in his NCAA yeah. career. So, you know, that, that may not manifest itself in game one. It might, but but it might not because that's just a, really a tall order when you, when you play Wisconsin in game one. But certainly they should be much better defensively.
1: We'll talk about Wisconsin in just a minute. But, you know, one thing that USF has done is they've scheduled – uh, a number of these power five schools uh, sort of the the two for one two road games one one home game, something that heretofore at least uh u c f has has not done what what's the 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 theory behind um you know adding these teams to their schedule uh these power five schools
0: Michael Kelly is doing what the athletic director he's doing what he feels is best for u s f and right you know we all know they don't have an on-campus football stadium like UCF. So to compare what USF is doing in terms of its scheduling philosophy with what UCF with an on-campus stadium, trying to, um, trying to fill that stadium. It's really an apples oranges comparison, Michael Mm -hmm. Kelly and with the endorsement, you know, and blessing of Charlie strong has gone out and um, re fortified some of these two for one deals that were in place before he got here and has added some more. So in the next decade, you've got two-for-one deals with Alabama, Florida, Miami, Texas. They'll play a home-and-home with Boise State. You know, Michael Kelly needs, USF needs these, you know, these home revenue gates. And that's what a Florida and Alabama can bring to them. Plus, when you go on the other side, you go and you play at these schools, you get a pretty nice paycheck. And for a for a program that's trying to build a football exclusive complex and, you know, beef up its recruiting budgets, you know, that's what USF needs at this point in time. So Michael Kelly is doing what he feels, you know, is best for USF. And of course, you know, you win a few of these games, you knock off a Florida or a Miami or a Texas down the line. There's, I mean, you can't quantify what that can do for your program. So it makes sense for USF, for USF from a financial standpoint, just from a profile standpoint on what they're trying to do and, you know, what kind of recognition they're trying, trying to get. Now, if Michael Kelly was at UCF, he had an on-campus stadium. He was trying to build his season ticket base with seven home games a year. He may have a completely different philosophy, but you know, he has an an off-campus stadium that he's trying to get revenue for. And he's trying to, you know, fortify his athletic budget across the board. So He's doing what he feels is, he, you know, his best first program, again, with the blessing of Charlie Strong. And I might add with the blessing of his fans, because regardless of what you hear from Orlando in that area, I mean, the, the, the non-conference scheduling that Michael has done is just drawn raised from his fan base. And to a degree nationally, people are talking about, you know, USF non-conference schedule from from a national standpoint.
1: Yeah, I mean, even the opener against Wisconsin, you know, which travels very well. By the way, they'll have plenty of fans there. That building, um, that that's at least created uh, sort of a buzz about about them starting their season. And look, they could upset Wisconsin, and if they did, how much of a boost would that be for Charlie Strong's program?
0: Oh, no, no question. They they can certainly win that game. And Martin and I were talking about this the other day. You know, it's going to be August 30th, and you know, you follow high school football around here, Rick. Uh, Friday nights, you know, they're they're prone to that good old you know, early evening, late afternoon thunderstorm, and it, mm-hmm. in this case, not maybe from a deadline reporter's perspective, but maybe from USF's perspective, a wet track may benefit them that night. Um, sure. So, you know, they they're certainly, you know, with, with what Kerwin has to work with on offense, you know, first game out, they're certainly capable of, you know toppling wisconsin and then you go they go the next week to georgia tech which is you know trying to transition with a new coach with a roster full of guys who are recruited for the triple option to uh yeah. to play a more conventional offense they're really i think they're really going to struggle these first couple of years as they make this transition so you know very conceivably you could see usf start out 2-0 and with victories against two you know power five programs and then you know you got momentum, and then there's no telling what could happen. But you know, it, it, it's very conceivable they could win this game coming up, coming out of the gate. And, you know, and that's you know. Then you got people talking about USF, and that's why that's why you schedule these type of games.
1: Yeah, they're picked third uh, in the East behind uh, UCF and, and Cincinnati. Um, of course, it's it's a long season; lots of things can happen. But what what would sort of constitute a good a good season for for uh, Charlie Strong this year?
0: Well, it's almost kind of gotten to be, you know, to a smaller degree in Alabama, Auburn, thing. you beat UCF, yeah. <laughs> you have a winning season, you beat UCF, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> I, I think Bulls fans would be very happy with that. You know, you, this program now, let's see, it's 2019, it's the 23rd year of the program, still never won a conference championship. So, obviously, that that would be the pinnacle right there. But, you know, I think, you know, just, showing some offensive life, winning, you know, nine games, uh, beating UCF. I think that would represent, you know, just uh, an outstanding season for for USF. But, um, you know, that, that, that Black Friday game at the end of the season has just become so huge just because of, you know, the fact that USF and UCF now share a, not only a conference, they share a division. And just because of what USF, UCF has been able to accomplish these last few years, that game just looms so large. So, I mean, if Charlie went into that game with eight wins and they won that game, I think USF fans would be very pleased at, you know, at this point.
1: Uh, the war on I-4 is real. Um, I'll, I'll let you go on this one, Joey. They are trying to raise money uh, for... A new football-only type complex, I guess they're somewhere around $20 million towards a $40 million goal committed. Look, we know uh, these kids that are recruited, uh, millennials being who they are, you, go, you see these unbelievable facilities being built everywhere around the nation at LSU and, and, of course, Oregon and all these places that we have seen in the past, Clemson, you name it, really. How important is that, though, towards, uh, towards attracting some of the upper echelon um, you know, recruits?
0: I think it's huge just for the reason you said, Rick, because in this day and time, recruits, you know, they want the swag. They they want the flair for, you know, whatever you want to call it. And they can go to just about any other any other school uh, of USF's comparable size and see a place with an on-campus stadium or football-exclusive complex where <clears throat> football has its own headquarters, and USF doesn't have any of that. And that's why Mm -hmm. Charlie is just so high on the staff he has now, because his coaches are, are really recruiting and and doing a good job of recruiting basically with, with nothing in terms of facilities to recruit to. So, you know, he, you know, just the other day, he was talking about that. He says, you know, my assistants are just, just incredible for what they're able to do with, you know, with how little they have to recruit to just from a facility standpoint. So, To be able to to bring a kid on campus and show them, hey, here's our indoor practice facility. Hey, here's our players' lounge, here's our locker rooms, you know, here here's our team meeting rooms, all in one one football exclusive complex. That would make all the difference in the world because that's what it's all about in recruiting in 2019. It's about that swag, and you said it, you know, Florida, Florida State, Miami, UCF they all have these facilities and right now usf does not and michael kelly said you know less than a month ago yes, it's a 40 million dollar project roughly they have eclipsed 20 million toward that goal he's hopeful that in the year 2020 they can break ground and that would be a huge stride if you could just see a shovel in the ground and you could have some kind of hope that yeah it's coming it's here and you could give that assurance to recruits hey you know, before you leave here, you're going to have your own football exclusive complex. That would be all the difference for, for USF.
1: Well, it all starts. It's going to be a big start for USF. They play Wisconsin on August 30th. That game is at 7 p.m. And Joey Knight, you can read all about the USF Bulls, of course, uh, on TampaBay.com. Thanks so much, Joey. We appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. All right. The Bucks will have their final walk through this afternoon before they catch a plane and head up to Pittsburgh. I'll be joining them. Tomorrow, in covering that game against the Steelers, the first preseason game with Bruce Arians at the helm, uh, we had a chance to uh, break down that game on tomorrow's podcast with Eduardo Encina, my buddy cop, that helps me cover the Bucks. And so you want to be on hand for that. We'll tell you what to look for in that game and which players are playing, which players are out, and which guys need to play well. The Rays are off today, but then they begin a series against the Seattle Mariners, so they got to get back on track after losing that series at home at Tropicana Field against the Blue Jays. And remember folks, uh, it's still very hot out there. I know your electric bill is going through the roof. I know mine is too. Here's what you do. You can call them now at 727-819-2862 and you can also receive a 30% tax credit through 2019 by changing to solar energy this year. So call the real May electric solar at 727-819-2862. For Steve Bursnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great day everybody.